Hey everyone, it's Jeremiah Latimo, and this is Gates of Perception. The totality of the universe is it's just perception. And uh, it's how we perceive things. And uh, there are no facts, only interpretations. The, the psychical events are facts, are realities. And when you observe the stream of images within, you observe an aspect of the world, of the world within. And so, you see, the man who is going by the external world, by the influences of the external world, say, society or perceptions, sense perceptions, thinks that he, he is more valid. Don't relate yourself to any person, anything, any idea. Thank you guys for tuning in today. So I'm actually recording over the first recording that I did for this podcast episode. And the reason why I'm doing that is because when I originally recorded this, it ended up being about almost two hours. It's an hour and 41 minutes. And I was like, nobody's going to sit through and just listen to me (laughs) rant for an hour and 40 minutes. So I decided it's better that I break this up into three parts. That way it's just a bit more digestible. This episode is completely focused on the dehumanization that is occurring today in our world and in our relationships and the ways in which we are conditioned and socialized to dehumanize one another. So in this episode, I really focus on one key factor that I think is contributing to that externally, and that's technology and the rapid growth of social media, artificial intelligence, and artificial intimacy. So that's what this episode is about. And At the end, I'll be sharing details about what part two is going to be about and when I'll be releasing that episode. So let's go ahead and listen. Hey guys, so we're talking about dehumanization today. And before even going into that conversation, I just want to share how I define dehumanization. And as I share that, keep in mind that this is a definition of how this happens to other people, how we do this to other people. But mind you that all of the things that I'm sharing within my definition, even today, are all ways in which you can also and have the potential to dehumanize yourself. So my definition of dehumanization is the process of dissociating from someone's humanity and attempt to justify certain behaviors that really further our own personal agendas. And that agenda could be preventing us from addressing how these behaviors, these actions, maybe even the way that we're speaking or relating to this person is really unkind, is unfair, is degrading, is violent, is unethical, or lacking compassion and empathy. So if we don't want to address that, we don't want to confront that or acknowledge that part of ourselves and maybe unpack 
what that might mean about where we're at on our journeys and who we are. The process of dissociating from someone's humanity, which is dehumanizing them, supports us in justifying that. Now, I want to share that this is a process and how I see that process unfolding is through language and images. I believe that the process of dehumanization begins with the language. And once we have the language, once the language is ingrained, we buy into it and it becomes an automatic part of our lexicon, our speech, and the way we identify others. Then the images associated with that language, we become desensitized to how unkind, unethical, and how dehumanizing those images are. So the media that we consume supports us in reinforcing the language itself. So that media could be seeing images of certain people portrayed as savages, as primitive, as mice or vermin or sexual objects. All of these are images that reinforce a certain language we've already adapted to. Now, with that understanding, you can see that dehumanization just doesn't happen between gender. It happens between races of people, ethnic groups. It happens between religious organizations. It happens even between age groups. Often babies, like young boys and girls, are dehumanized. And also the people that are our elders are also dehumanized. So just understanding how I'm defining it, you can see how this permeates and leaves nothing untouched from all of these different aspects of our human experience and all these different identities that we take on as we develop our values and really just begin to relate to the world. Now, there are so many factors that play into the process of dehumanization. And one of those big ones is inequality. Like when people are not given the same privileges and rights to housing, to education, to healthcare, to a good paying wage, those inequalities impacts people not just in a social context but also impacts them in the way that they are then disenfranchised in where they lose certain opportunities for employment or are vilified and casted a label throughout the rest of their lives that process is gradual but it is accelerated by the inequality that exists between certain groups, like I mentioned earlier. And so that inequality, when there's not a, a sense of this person has the same rights as I do, this person has the same capacity to achieve success as I do, and the same privileges granted to them to 
accelerate themselves in the world to achieve and manifest their dreams as I do. That's not happening in the world. And so what happens is that because of those inequalities that exist and still exist today, there becomes a language that is reinforced as a, as a, as a byproduct of that inequality. And so that could be the way in which we see people that are in poverty. When you label somebody as homeless, you are desensitizing yourself to the complexity of their human experience. And this goes on and on and on. So when you look at just what has transpired in certain groups and certain race of people, in the way in which they've been labeled as either primitive or as either cockroaches or vermin or mice, this is how the Nazis referred to the Jews, this cockroach term was how certain people referred to uh, the Tutsis in Rwanda. All of these things, as I mentioned earlier with my definition, is a justification for genocide, for violence, for being unkind, for being like when you reduce somebody to a label that is degrading, that doesn't encompass the whole person, the entirety of their experiences, but you reduce them to this little box you have essentially dehumanized them. You have dissociated from their humanity. And so a key factor, as I shared, that supports us in that is the inequality that exists. I don't want to focus on that today in today's conversation. What I want to touch on is this other key factor. And there are plenty. I'm pretty sure you can start to think of some as we go through this conversation. But one that I want to focus on today is the rapid growth of technology, the use of social media, and the, and the rapid growth of artificial intelligence and artificial intimacy. Now, in my opinion, the rate in which we're dehumanized and dehumanizing one another is at a larger rate, at a larger pace than I believe we ever have before. I think one of the big things that's here that may have not been before in the ancient world is technology and social media and all of the things that we are using to quote unquote connect to each other today. So before we even get deep into this conversation, I really want to preface that what I'm speaking to has very little to do with the systems itself has very little to do with the corporations involved. I don't want this conversation to be focused on that. I want this conversation to be focused on the relational dynamics that we've developed with one another as a result of existing within these systems. And the reason I say that is that I find a lot of imbalance in the way we approach these kind of conversations, because I see too often, there are only two paths that are usually presented. And one of those paths is 
the activist path. And so the activist path is one that embodies a very high sense of courage, bravery, and competence. This individual or this group confronts the systems, confronts the inequality, confronts the oppressive nature of the way in which we relate to one another outward, right? Their rage, their frustration is projected outwards and it's manifested in their actions. We know what those actions can look like for different groups of people. And so what I find is that those individuals, even when I look back in history, those individuals had an overemphasis on the external representation of oppression, of disharmony, of inequality. And I find, I find that a lot of the individuals that we've seen in these spaces that are fighting for our rights, that are, that are standing up for something real, are often not placing enough attention on their own inner work. Like I've gone through a lot of powerful figures throughout our lives, and I've went into investigating what their relational dynamics were. Like men that were in powerful positions, how do they treat their wives? How do they relate to their children? How do they relate to other groups that didn't look like them? And what I find is that often these figures were very homophobic, were very racist, were very violent and physically abusive to their wives, were often neglecting their children, and had a very wounded relationship with themselves. And we negate that part of the messenger because the message is so powerful. Like, wow, they're embodying a certain level of courage that many of us struggle to embody. Like they're martyrs. They're openly putting themselves on the line every day to stand up for something real. There's too much emphasis that I notice when I look back into certain movements. There was so much emphasis on the external work that it was able to bypass the lack of inner work that was happening. And I don't even want to jump into the conversation about what movements and what groups and what figures I'm talking about and referencing. And that's a conversation for another day. The other path that is often presented to us is the path of doing the inner work. But this path of doing the inner work often leads people to then look at the systems and the ways in which other people are being oppressed, the, the war, the harm, the, the, the structures in which we relate, they tend to look at it as an illusion. What really matters is the work I do on myself. All of that other shit is going to naturally change as a result of that, which is true. I stand by that wholeheartedly. And at the same time, it's still important to stand up for what is real, to be in spaces where we're connecting 
with a community of people that want the same things that we want out of life, that want the same change we want to see in the world, that are embodying the compassion that we wish to see in the world, that is equally as powerful. And so oftentimes the inner work becomes an expression of hyper-individualism, where it's just about me. I just got to focus on me. And we forget the community aspect of it, which looks like being with a group of people going to a march around some issue that you are deeply passionate about. And so I find both to be very, very powerful if we are going to be catalysts for change. And oftentimes people fall on either one of the spectrums. And so if you're doing the activism, you don't really have to do the inner work, right? Because you're, you're hyperly invisible. Everyone knows what you stand for. Everyone knows you're doing the fucking work, right? Quote, unquote. And then the other side is like, oh, I'm doing the work. I'm healing. I'm talking about the things. But are you really interested in dismantling this system that has made and shaped the things that you're now addressing inside of yourself? So I think both are equally important. But again, today I'm just focusing on the inner aspect. I don't want this conversation to be, we got to shut down Facebook. We got to shut down TikTok. We got to, all of it, they're, they're, they're fucking everything up. Like that has some reality to it, right? But what I'm talking about is the relational dynamics because too often in the conversation, there's this notion that if we remove the political figures, if we remove these corrupt governments, if we remove these corrupt corporations, then everything is going to be fine. And it's a fairy tale. It's a fairy tale. Because the people that are going to still be upholding those systems, even when they don't quote unquote exist anymore, are the ones that have internalized the system. We have internalized the system. It doesn't need to exist anymore because it exists within us. Capitalism, patriarchy, all of this stuff starts at home. This is the thing people think like, okay, now, now I'm addressing patriarchy. I'm in the world. I'm seeing the shit. Oh God. Like, no, this started in your house. This started at a home. This started when you were two years old and your mom looked at you and said, you know what? Boys suck. Girls are better than boys. Or your mom looked at you and said, blue is better than pink. It's in the moments where you looked at your mom and realized that your brother was allowed to do certain things that you couldn't do, that you couldn't talk about your boyfriends, but your brother could bring girls home. He could talk about who he was dating. It's in the moments where you realize that, oh my God, I'm always having to do the dishes, but my brother gets away with it. It's in all these experiences where you first started to see that, wait, I exist within a dominance-based hierarchy. It's not when you stepped outside, it's when you were in your childhood home. So that means that it's already embedded into us. There's already been a installation of the system inside, inside the way we relate to our bodies, in the way we relate to ourselves, in the way we relate to our emotions, 
and the way we relate to others. So even if the corporations are gone, you're still going to be upholding them. So that's why the relational dynamics have to change. They have to change, and it's both and. So the relational dynamics change, and you still make time to confront what needs to change externally. And so I, I just want us to be able to hold both those paradoxes and that nuance in this conversation. So with technology and social media, we've been able to do so much. Like there's so much beauty that's come from just this day and age that we live in. There's so much easefulness to our lives. There's so much expansion of consciousness that's transpired as a result of technology, as a result of the access to information, to resources and people and things like that, that we now have access to that really expands and accelerates a lot. And to be honest, in my opinion, I think that is the purpose of technology. It is to accelerate consciousness. And it has been doing that. It's been doing that really well. And even you think about social media, you know, people have been meeting and connecting with individuals that possibly feel like star-crossed lovers. Possibly there are moments online where because of social media, people have been able to connect with family members that they've lost touch with that without technology, they would have never spoken to again. Uh, I've seen videos of people that follow each other and then come to find out that this is their long lost brother that they were separated at birth with. And all of these amazing, wildly insane stories that would not have happened if it wasn't for technology and social media. And even my own relationship was sparked by <laughs> sliding in the DMs <laughs> or liking three pictures and waiting for a response. It's like that's the reality of it. And I, I know the beauty. I know the power that social media has had on my own personal life and people that I know that because of social media, they've been able to really step into their power by making a commitment to saying, I'm going to talk about what I feel on social media for the next two months. I'm going to share my thoughts. I'm going to share my poems. I'm going to share my genius and my truth online and see what happens. And through that process, they've been able to not only create a community, but also believe in themselves again. And I'm also one of those people. And so there's so much power and beauty that's come from this and so much expansion of our lives, you know, so much things that you would have, you would have honestly taken your whole life to get to, to understand, to see that because of social media and technology, you've been able to grasp it a lot quicker than you, than you would have without it. And with that, I think it's important in this conversation to talk about the shadow of that. Because like I mentioned with everything, there is a shadow. We're in that spectrum of it. We're in that, okay, this thing is a bit extreme now. We're 
overemphasizing this. We've overglorified this. We've spent way too much of our attention and energy into this thing. And that has its manifestations. And so what I want to talk about is how those manifestations are showing up in our lives and in our relationships today. So one of the most powerful components of technology is that it's fast. Like any fucking modern human would say that their biggest pet peeve is slow internet. Like imagine like you get to an Airbnb and you spent this amount of money and you're having a good time and then you try to use the Wi-Fi and it's glitchy, it's slow, you can't have your Zoom calls, you have unstable connection, you can't hear your friend. So one of the things we love most about the technology that we have today is its speed. And because of that, we've slowly and gradually come to a point where we exist in a fast food culture, where everything is always in the palm of your hands, that anything that you want, you can have right now. If I go online and I want a new pair of shoes, all I have to do is go on Amazon and do a same day delivery. If I order that item or those pair of shoes before 3 p.m., I could get those sometime today. And so this trains something in me because if I'm somebody that's constantly using these systems, it trains something in me, especially if I use all of these devices to also communicate with people. And what I see is I send somebody a message and instantly I see a message that says delivered. And then they respond back to me and then we continue to have a conversation. But everything around me is showing me that you can have all of this right now. You want to talk to that person? Here it goes. You want to get that thing? Here it is. All you have to do is just fill out this form or send me your credit card information or it's just a click away is what we often hear as a tagline to to some product, right? Same day delivery, get it in the next two hours. These companies play off of the fact that we believe this is how life works now, that all things happen instantly, that there's no gradual progression in anything. And so what happens is we develop a resistance to the gradual, to the slow, to the process of life itself. Like when you just think about that, nothing else in life outside of technology, like nothing in nature is instant. Everything in nature is gradual. The birth of a child, the maturation of a fetus, the development of the body, the growth of your hair, the loss of your hair, everything is gradual. But now, because of technology, we are no longer connected to the rhythm of life. Like this is life's rhythm. It operates in cycles. And those cycles don't happen within a two-hour period, nor do they happen within a 24-hour window. They happen gradually because they also contain seasons within them. And so with each season, we're tuned to something different. All right, so I'm painting a picture here. Now, couple of that with the fact that 
you are always seeing other people online. You are bombarded with loads of information, but also loads and tons of different faces, ethnicities, groups, and just different facets of life and different parts of the world every day if you use social media constantly. That never happened before. That was not an experience that my ancestors had. The people they would see every day would be the people in their community that looked like them. And it took a lot, like it took a lot for them to encounter somebody that wasn't of their tribe, that didn't look like them, that didn't speak their language. But every day, if you hop on TikTok and you're just scrolling through that For You page for two hours, you've seen about a hundred different faces, a hundred different features, and probably a lot of different attractive and beautiful kind of people. And you're also seeing a lot of different intelligent people, people that are strong, people that are very emotionally competent, people that are well-versed in the topic that you're passionate about. And you're also seeing different images of the world. If you follow these nature pages where you're just seeing different animals all of the time, what it's like to live in Italy, what it's like to live in France, what it's like to live in Atlanta, you're getting a certain set of information and experience that your ancestors probably would have never had in their lifetime. So what this means is then you believe that all of these other things that you're witnessing, seeing these people that you're relating to, these messages that you're resonating with are now a choice that's available to you. Because if I see Italy and I'm like, damn, that shit's beautiful. Italy becomes a choice. I'm like, do I want to go to Italy? Now, imagine this happens with people. I'm engaging with a certain account every day. I'm engaging with certain types of people every day. I'm seeing their content. I'm hearing about their lives. I start to see that reality that they live and they exist in or that relationship as a choice. Do I want that experience? Do I want that person that's saying all of this stuff? Do I want that kind of man or do I want that kind of woman? Do I want a woman that looks like her, that has that nose, that has those hips? It becomes a choice for me because the moment I see it, my mind expands its horizons and then understands that, wait, that could be possibly available to me. When we receive a new set of information, it expands our horizons on what's possible. But this is the, the shadow of it, is we're constantly expanding our lens on what's possible that detracts us from what's already available to us, from what's already here right now. So this is the thing, we have too many fucking choices. Like there's this understanding that I think amongst therapists or marriage therapists that they've noticed that people today in modern relationships give up too soon. Like when things get tough, most often people just break up and it's like, ah, this isn't going to fucking work. I don't want to do this. Or when we have career fields that we're in or we have projects that we started or things that we're doing with our lives, we often give up too soon. And I believe the reason that that happens, especially in relationships, is because we feel like we have another choice. We feel that there's something else that's going to be available to us, somebody else that's going to come along. 
because we're constantly consuming this content that informs us that if you let go of this relationship today, there's going to be another one that comes in right tomorrow. So all relationships become disposable then. Because if I'm constantly seeing other different people relating in certain ways, talking about the relationship in a certain way, I start to look at my relationship differently. I'm like, wow, I want that too. Oh, wow, he's not doing that. Like, damn, that girl looks a lot better than my girl. And so I lose touch with what I enjoy about my person right now. What I love and adore about my relationship. Because I'm constantly expanding my horizons to what else is going on in other people's world. I'm connecting to everyone else's reality but my own. And this is the thing about social media. It kind of perpetuates this state of comparison. And this happens individually, but this definitely happens relationally. Where we're always comparing, how am I progressing in my relationship with this person? How is our relationship healthy or empowering compared to what other people are experiencing? If I keep doing that, I'm like, oh my God, there's this red flag. Oh my God, he's not, he's, he's definitely not it. There's these other green flags that aren't here. Oh my God. And because we're constantly bombarded with all of these information, all of these choices on what our relationship could be like. Now, remember, couple that with the instant gratification, this rush of dopamine that social media gives us to where we're constantly addicted to the high. We can no longer tolerate or navigate or regulate through the lows, through the changes, through the shifts, through the things that are gradual, that no matter how you try to change it, it will never become something that's instant. It is always going to be a gradual progression. So there are aspects of our relationship that just can't happen today, that just won't change tomorrow, that they are going to change in rhythm with a greater cycle. Now, this is where the dehumanization bar comes in, is that when we are constantly interacting and interfacing with curated expressions of who people are, and we're also giving them a curated expression of our lives and who we are, this is artificial intimacy. You don't understand that person. You don't know that person. Even me. Everything I share is curated. Why? Because based on how I've chosen to relate to Instagram, I have to curate my experiences. I have to curate the things that I say towards my audience, not towards what's always fucking a hell yes, a, a genuine post for me. Though it's deep and I resonate with it, I still have to curate what I share. Because at the end of the day, because at the end of the day, I'm trying to thrive in my life. I'm trying to thrive in my business. So again, people are relating to a curated expression of myself. And this is constantly happening, but people feel connected to me. But what are, what are people connected to? What are they connecting to? Are they connecting to the fact that I'm a man saying this thing? Are they connected to the fact that I'm a black man saying this thing? Are they connected to the fact that I'm just saying the thing? But how much of that is about me? How much of that is encompassing the whole Jeremiah or just a facet of him? But then people walk away like, wow, I love him. 
He gets me. I resonate with him. I would be best friends with him. And this is how you get that parasocial relationship where you connect with people, but you think you know them. There are people that actually take that to such an extreme that they think that the people they've been influenced by, that they've been relating to online, are their long-lost lovers, are their twin flames. And they stalk and harass that individual. I know, I have friends that people have connected with them online and think that they know them. And this is what I mean. This is an artificial point of connection. Because the only aspects of the person that you've been connecting with is what they felt comfortable to share or what they wanted you to see. This is the other piece is that some people just share who they want others to see them as. And this is the other layer that makes it an artificial point of intimacy and connection because they are not only sharing with you what they felt comfortable to share, but you're only interacting and engaging with them because you like those parts that they chose to share. Like the only reason you follow certain people is because you like those parts of them. You want to hear what they have to say. But when that shit is not present, when they start sharing things that you don't agree with, when they start bringing in their whole selves, what do you do? You usually block them. You probably unfollow them. You probably throw a nasty comment in their DMs or in their underneath their post because you are only interested in one facet of them. And that facet of them is the part of them that makes you feel good. Whatever it is, it's an artificial point of connection. You're not interested in the whole person. You're interested in the parts of them that make you feel good. And you're probably doing this in your own life with other people as well. So we are never really connecting with who people are. And again, vice versa, this is also happening. We're also doing the same thing. So what happens is we connect to the image of somebody. When I connect to the image of you, I'm interacting with an image. I'm not interacting with the whole person. I'm not interacting with the whole individual. This right here is how we've learned to see people as commodities. We don't see people as whole people. We don't see people as real, living, breathing human beings with the complexity of things that make up who they are. And it's partially because we're not distinguishing the difference between who somebody presents themselves to be online, who they actually are, how they interact with their community, how they interact with the people in their intimate circles, and what they choose to share online. Those are all things that are based on context. The way I interact online is based on the context of my life, what I choose to post, what I choose to share, how often I choose to share. And in my real life, in my personal life, there is a whole different set of context. There is a whole different context that exists there. And so if that all is conflated as one thing, one whole person, I become less than human because the complexity of who I am, all of the myriad of things that shape my life and, and my choices and my actions are thrown out and I'm reduced to this little character known as Jeremiah. 
And that character is completely based on what I am and what I present online. Now I'm sharing that so that we can see how we do that to ourselves. If you're somebody that doesn't believe that this is how you interact, that you're conflating who you are, how you interact online, and how people respond to you online as one thing, just ask yourself, if I were to post a selfie, or I were to post something really heartfelt today, and I had zero likes on it, or I got three likes on it, how would I feel by myself afterwards? Would I hide my like count or would I delete the post or would I continue with my day and feel really good about what I shared or how dope or beautiful I looked in that selfie? Most often, you're probably going to start contemplating, wait, was that a good post? Self-doubt is going to creep in. That's even why Instagram set this feature to hide your like count because it already knows the manifestations of interacting with this and interfacing with this type of technology is that we've tied our self-worth to the technology. Like my self-worth is based on my follower count, is based on my like count, it's based on the engagement of my post, it's based on the rapid growth of my page or the quality of my pictures and videos. And so when I get a new like or when I get a new follow, interacting with this thing has told me to equate that to some level of love and connection. And this is what I mean. It's artificial intimacy. That like, that follow does not equate to any form of intimacy, really. Because this is the thing. If it wasn't artificial, then we wouldn't feel more lonely as a result of the rapid growth of technology. Like there is an epidemic of loneliness. There's an epidemic of people experiencing high levels of depression because they're constantly using social media. If we were actually creating real points of intimacy and connection with others, this wouldn't be happening. There would be an increase in connection. There would be an increase in people feeling fulfilled in their lives, people feeling good about themselves, suicide rates dropping. Like there would be so much evidence to show. So why we experience this as intimacy, even though it's not real intimacy, is because we've lost touch with the sacredness of the human experience. So what I see sacred is something that I understand that it exists beyond the ways in which it serves me. For example, nature. We have a deep reverence for nature. I mean, some people do. (laughs) Um, The trees, the oceans, the animals, the plants. There is a deep reverence that we are supposed to have for nature and all the ways in which it provides for us, cares for us, and supports us. And so when you connect with indigenous communities, when you connect with wisdom keepers, they never lost touch with that knowledge. They understand that nature not only provides and supports and loves us, but she exists beyond what she's doing for us. She has her own evolution that we are a part of, but that evolution exists beyond what she does for us. And so that 
is what it means to be in touch with the sacred. So when I see my partner as sacred, it is me recognizing that, whoa, this person in front of me exists beyond the ways in which she meets my needs, exists beyond the ways she makes me happy, and vice versa. So to be in touch with that is requiring me to not only see the humanity within the person, but to see all of the other things that make up who they are. And that means the spirit, the soul, the mind, the heart, even their relationship to their creator. I'm encompassing all of that in the way I relate to them because I'm in touch with the sacredness of who they are as an individual and also in touch with the sacredness of myself and the sacredness of life. We've lost touch with that. So what happens when we are connecting online, we translate that as connection, as intimacy. Oh, wow, this person followed me. We just exchanged some messages and they resonated with what I said. Wow, I, I, have, I have friends in the world. Or wow, I posted something online. I feel good about myself. A thousand people liked it. None of that was a point of intimacy. But because we have probably zero reference for what that really feels like, we settle for that point of connection. We settle for that kind of intimacy. Like we've lost touch with the sacredness of communication because we're constantly being able to communicate with whoever we want, whenever we want. And I can also send messages to people that I know and love and they'll receive it immediately. We lose touch with the sacredness of that when we're so involved in that every day. That's, that's a part of our life. It, becomes, it became our new normal, right? But like, think back to a time when people had to send each other letters. And when you sent that letter, you didn't know when it was going to arrive. You didn't know when somebody was going to get to experience your heart in this letter that you wrote. You didn't know when that person was going to hear about your update on how life is going and how you miss them so much and how you can't wait to get back home. That experience, we budgeted in not for two seconds, not for five minutes, not for 20 minutes or two hours or three days. We budgeted in that the delivery of that message might take three, four months, might take a year, because we took into consideration the circumstances that might come up. We knew that there are so many factors that, that could contribute to that person not receiving it in the next two months or the next two years. But in that, we were in touch with the sacredness of love and the power and the potency of connection and the power and potency of communication. Now you have people that are in relationships and will always want their partner to be available for them, always want their partner to reassure them immediately. Oh, I'm right. Uh, okay. I, I, I love you. Uh, you're beautiful. All of these things. Like We've lost touch with the patience, the yearning, the longing, that exists in the space between those moments of, I feel separated from my partner and I feel reunited in their love again. Like we have no tolerance for that gap anymore. 
we try to snuff it out immediately when we sense it. But this is a result of the way in which we've related to one another now. If I'm feeling the immediacy of an emotion, of a challenging experience, I know that that can vanish within moments based on how I'm trained and how I've interfaced with this technology. When I feel challenging emotions, everything tells me that that can be gone within an instant, within a meditation, within a plant medicine experience, within a conversation with a therapist, not understanding that these things are gradual, that they are a part of a larger cycle, that they take time. So as I lose touch with the sacredness of that, what happens is I can then reduce people to certain labels, right? You're not masculine enough. You're not feminine enough. You're a narcissist. You're a wounded empath. You're a Republican. You're a leftist. You're a conspiracy theorist. And so this psychological phenomenon happens where we split people. They're either good or they're bad. They're either a narcissist or they're kind. They're either in their masculine or they're not. They're either in that feminine energy that I want or they're not a good partner for me. We split people and we lose sight of the nuances, those grays that are shaped by the context of their experiences and their past experiences and the things that they're here to learn, to integrate, and the lessons that are, that, that are being presented, not just for them, but for you as well, in light of who you're connecting with. And so when we split people, we dehumanize them. We disregard their humanity. When I look at somebody and I split them, you're either good, right? That's still a split that's denying their humanity, that's denying their potential for anger, that's denying their potential for sadness, shyness, frustration, and even mistakes, because I'm labeling them as purely good, rather than just seeing the wholeness of who they are. And then you have the bad label, a narcissist. I'm losing sight of all of the experiences and the context that may have shaped the challenges and the wounded behaviors that I'm currently witnessing right now. And so it is my language that gives me permission, the language I subscribe to, that gives me permission to be unethical, to be unkind, and to take into consideration what they might be experiencing. And so what social media allows us to do is to continue to normalize hatred. Not hatred for people, but the images of what we are told of what people are. If you're in that red pill community and you're tuning into those types of content, then you are not hating women. You're hating the image of women that you're constantly being given by the community of speakers and influencers that you're consuming. And if you're in these feminist circles, there's a normalization of hatred towards men. And again, it's not men personally that you are relating to. It is a character. It is an image of what men are based on what that person is experiencing in their own personal life, has experienced in their own personal life. And so this is what I mean. Context is left out. The image that they're projecting is based on the context of their personal experiences. It is not based on the context of masculinity 
or the context of the individual that you're in partnership with, or your father, or your little brother, you lose sight of all of these nuances. But again, we're all in some way using social media to justify our hatred towards certain groups, to justify our unkindness towards our partners, to justify our actions to want to leave their relationship or to jump ship. Because every day we can look online and say, oh yeah, you know, the shit I'm dealing with, somebody else isn't dealing with it. So I guess I don't have to. And we lose the ability to tolerate the difficult things, to weather the storm, to navigate challenges, to find love in the space of yearning. But why? Why do I have to yearn for love? I don't have to long for love. I don't have to feel the fire of longing burning inside my heart. I can just dump this person and then create a Tinder profile. And that will embody the longing for love that I feel, right? That's how we relate to one another. I can end this relationship tomorrow and go through my followers and see who I've been connecting with lately and schedule up some dates. Like this is how most people engage with themselves and engage with the world is that I'm always, there's, there's always an option available to me. And all of those options communicate everything but sitting with the discomfort. Like the human being has such a high tolerance for avoiding discomfort that we can use things like technology and social media perpetuate our avoidance, our denial of discomfort. And that discomfort is vulnerability. It is very fucking vulnerable to get curious about somebody else's experience. It is a very vulnerable act to think about, well, what could this person be processing right now? Who is this person beyond what they share online? It's a very vulnerable act to look at yourself and say, I don't really feel loved because people follow me, because people like my stuff. I don't feel connected to the people that I follow online would that engage with me or acknowledging that you've tied your self-worth to social media and what you present yourself online to be. That is a very vulnerable act. And that vulnerability is how we change our relationship to social media because that begins the question or the inquiry of what do I use this platform, this content that I consume, these people that I engage with to avoid about myself? What about the content that I consume helps me secretly enact in my life? The behaviors I get to justify in my life. All this content that I'm consuming about relationships, is that just a doorway for me to constantly compare my relationship to other people's relationship? Because I don't trust myself to have made a good decision to be in this partnership. Or all of this content that I'm consuming of beautiful women here and beautiful women there. So either I can compare myself to them or I can compare my partner to them. And that way I don't have to remain committed. I don't have to devote myself to this person because there's so many other beautiful women that exist that have these qualities that look like this, that do this, that have these interests. All of this shit that I'm consuming is always a doorway to avoiding some kind of discomfort and some level of vulnerability with myself. And so when we're 
avoiding vulnerability, we will consent to our own dehumanization. Like, just think about how we are so okay with all of these corporations having all of our data. Like, data is most valuable asset right now. It's not gold, it's not oil, it's not silver, it's literally data. Like, these companies pay billions of dollars to have our data. But we consent to that. We make fun of the fact that nobody reads the terms and agreements. But those that do read the terms and agreements realize that, whoa, we're giving up a lot. We're allowing access to a lot. But this is what I mean. We consent to our own dehumanization because it's very vulnerable to say, oh my God, somebody has access to my data. I don't know how I feel about that. Right? Because if they have access to my data and they have access to my cameras, then how much privacy do I have? Somebody might be seeing the vulnerable pictures that I have of myself on my phone, pictures with my partner, pictures with my family. I don't know if I want people seeing that. I don't know if I want people accessing that. But that requires me to tune into the discomfort I feel around having my privacy infringed upon. That requires me to tune into the sacredness of my own privacy, of my data, of my name, my information, the photos that communicate who I am, the messages that I've shared with people, all of the data, all of the things that kind of communicate who I am. That's something that's very sacred to me. I don't know if I want people that I never met, that I don't know, having access to that. And so being in touch with that place of discomfort allows me to shape a different relationship with social media. I don't consent to my own dehumanization. So lastly, I want to share, it's just so important for us to get back in touch with the sacred, is to ask ourselves, what do I share online that I would define as sacred, as a sacred experience? What parts of myself do I want to preserve for the people that I love and hold dearest. Like finding new ways to get back in touch with the sacredness of our own experiences. Because many of us here are using these platforms to monetize, grow not only an audience, but grow a business. We then believe that everything that we've experienced that's profound, that's enlightening, we have to share it and post it online. We lose touch with the very sacred experience and orchestration that allowed us to have that profound realization, to have that moment of aha, or awe, or enlightenment. Like, not everything has to be shared online. There are things that are meant to be kept sacred just between you and your heart. That is how we stop dehumanizing ourselves, because even though we may not reduce ourselves to a label, we reduce ourselves to a profile. And when you reduce yourself to anything other than the fullness of who you are, you are consenting and giving life and perpetuating your own dehumanization. And so the same happens with how you relate to others. Don't reduce the people you engage with to what they share online, to how many followers they have, if there's anyone that you connect with online, like actually take the efforts to get to know them, to link up with them, whatever it is that actually brings you out of that digital realm into something very real, 
and intimate. I deeply, deeply advise that because even now we're all working and connecting from Zoom. Like all of my client calls are from Zoom. I hate that. I'm happy I'm able to do that, but there's a part of me that feels such a deep loss of connection and intimacy because I'm not with the person. I can't see their mannerisms, their expressions. I can't pick up on their little quirks. I'm connecting from a very digital screen every time, every call. And so it's so, so important for us to notice the consequences of living in that type of world and doing what is within our control to not perpetuate that. Even if it's in our own lives, we put our phones down and we connect with our community. We don't choose to watch anything while we're eating. We go and meet our grandmothers. We don't call our grandmothers. Whatever it is that allows us to connect back to the sacredness. The important thing that I'm trying to drive here is that we have to remember and embrace the gradual aspects of life, the things that are unfolding that can never be instant, that can never happen at the snap of a finger. We have to get back in touch with that. That might mean not making any three-minute meals, not watching YouTube videos that start with, cook your favorite meal in five minutes. Stop doing that shit. Like watch the videos that take 20, 30 minutes. Consume that. If there's content that you see online that's two minutes long, find videos that are 10 minutes long. Sit through the whole thing if you have time. Get back in touch with the gradual aspects of life. Because if that's how you're relating online, trust me, that's how you're relating with yourself. Any emotion that sparks, any challenging experience you have, you're probably trying to get rid of it as quickly as you can. Through friends, through relationships, through drugs, through sex, through social media, through scrolling, whatever way in which you've learned to cope with the discomfort of the things that literally take time. Form a new relationship with it. Find ways to bring back slowness into your life. Thank you guys for joining me for this episode. If you made it this far, this was about an hour long of me recording. And I didn't even touch on a lot of things because I just wanted to just drive home the relational aspect of it. But thank you again for joining me. Part two is going to be about how we, as a result of all of the things I've talked about today, we dehumanize women and we objectify women and how that plays out in relationships and in the world. So tune into that. I'm going to be dropping that on Tuesday. And then part three, I'm going to be sharing on Thursday. If you did resonate with anything that I shared today, feel free to message me, share your takeaways, drop a review and tell me how the episode impacted you or share this online. With that, guys, I'll see you on the next one. Peace.